You know, for centuries, the ultra-wealthy have been putting their money where their mouths are by investing in fine wine. And now, with Vint, you can do that too. At Vint, we offer SEC-qualified investment opportunities of fine wine and spirits curated by our experts with portfolio managers. With Vint, you can invest and diversify into the most sought-after assets that have a history of price appreciation. Learn more at VINT.co. For full investment disclosure information and more, visit VINT.co. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting? Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ah! All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode. Today is an interview with Mark uh, Bagarava. Sorry, Mark Bargava. Uh, am I pronouncing that correctly? Yeah, that's right. And Mark is the founder, one of the three founders of Togomi. And uh, Mark and I got to meet last week, really fascinated by the company when you guys announced that you had raised money recently. Is that the recent press that came out around Togomi? Yeah, that's right. So we uh, recently had a financing round that was only open to clients on the platform. So it's very exciting to have folks who have been onboarding or using us, uh, investing in the company as well, and helping us to make a better product. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so to go me, a couple of taglines I've heard is a startup that bills itself as crypto's answer to Wall Street's prime brokerages. Uh, how would you describe what Tagomi does to somebody who has fairly basic knowledge of the finance world? Yeah, totally. So <clears throat> I can describe first kind of what a brokerage is um, and the context there. And then the sort of two pieces that make us a really unique brokerage, which is the agency model that we use um, with our clients and also the electronic uh, model that we use. So a brokerage is really a one-stop shop. So if you're a larger, more sophisticated uh, trading fund or family office, you know you might not want to deal with multiple mar market participants at the same time and have to stitch that all together. So in the traditional equities world, you would go to a brokerage, and the brokerage's you know role is really to be able to put together a lot of different firms and services and be the one counterparty you face off with um, to do all sorts of things from trading to lending to shorting. And so, you know, that's the brokerage model. It, it sits on top of the market participants. Um, and it hasn't really existed in crypto. But in 2017, um, you know, my co-founder Jennifer and I got a lot of requests for a company like this. So I can definitely tell more of the story there. But to answer the question, you know, the first part is we're a brokerage. The second part is we're electronic and agency. So electronic means that we connect to all of these exchanges, market makers, custodians, banks. You know, we connect to all of them electronically. And that's important because when you think about things like routing and being able to go to wherever the best pricing is, you know, you're only going to be able to execute on that if you're connected to folks electronically um, and can take advantage of better trades or better pricing and algorithms to place those trades. So the electronic, the technology component is really at the core of what we do. 
Um, but the agency part of being an electronic agency brokerage is really the ethos of what we do. So agency means we're always your agent. Um, we don't have a balance sheet. We don't trade against you. We don't market make. We do whatever is in the best interest for you in terms of placing a trade in the cryptocurrency space. And, you know, we really stand by that. So after every trade, we generate a post-trade report um, and show you exactly how a trade was placed. So sort of wrapping those things together, being a brokerage that is always your agent, that's using these high-tech electronic methods of placing trades, the end result is that if you come to us and you're a family office or a crypto fund or you know anyone really placing trades more than 50000 um, the end result is you end up getting a better price, you end up getting the transparency around how your trade was placed, and you end up getting our commitment that you know we're working as your agent and that's our model. And so this was really lacking in the space. And you know, <clears throat> it took a while kind of coming out, but you know, my co-founder Jennifer worked over at Union Square Ventures, and I remember I would grab coffee with her sort of every two weeks and sort of in, you know, the summer and fall of 2017, we would be grabbing coffee and she'd be pretty much falling asleep at the table. And I kind of asked her what was, you know, what was up? Like, is, you know, is venture that rigorous? And she said, no, but, you know, a lot of the LPs and family offices and people in network know that I was an early backer of a lot of really great companies and I've been in the space. And they've been asking me, how do I place bigger trades? How do I do a million dollar Bitcoin trade or a $2 million Ethereum trade? And they're facing all these challenges, you know, hooking up to exchanges individually and having to go through KYC AML and doing selfies multiple times. And when they go to the OTC desks, they, you know, they don't really understand um, you know, why there isn't a post-trade report and I have to explain to them, you know, how it's not the same as the equities world. There's not that rigor. And so I said, you know, if you're already helping all these folks understand how to navigate these crypto markets and you're putting together all of these things, like, why don't we look for a brokerage to invest in? And so that's when Jen and I started actively looking for a brokerage, an electronic agency one specifically to invest in that would copy what, you know, 80% of equities in the traditional world uses. And we spent, you know, several months looking for that sort of company and just didn't find it. But then we did find someone. And that someone was actually now is our third co-founder, Greg. And so Greg Tusar helped build one of the first electronic trading companies in the 90s, which ended up getting acquired and eventually acquired by Goldman, which he ran for 13 years as the global head of electronic trading. Um, and then after that, he went to help lead KCG, a big market-making fund, which had just been acquired. And so we found this person who had a lot of background and history in this, also in building and selling companies, and himself was now looking really closely at the crypto markets with sort of the same surprise we had. And... We sort of shifted. I think it, it happened at lunch in Union Square, you know, in January. We said, well, why don't we just do this? Um, and so we kind of took that plunge, all quit our jobs, or at least Jen and I quit our jobs that week. Um, and the next week, we flew out to California, got super lucky, got backed by Founders Fund, um, did a $15 million round with them. Um, it was, you know, just a really great group of folks who themselves had been trading and really understood the space. And, you know, the rest is history. Got it. Wow. What an awesome story. And did you guys, when you flew out to SF, did you raise money with a simple idea, pitch deck, a basic product or some money flowing through the system? Where, where were you guys when you raised that <coughs> initial Yeah. Round? We had put together a lot of the parts. So, you know, over the three or four months that we were sort of searching for this company, we ended up talking to a lot of the players. So, you know, Jen and I flew out to Korea and Japan and met with exchanges out there. 
Um, you know, we we had late night Skype calls with people um, in Asia, and then really early calls with people in Europe. And we were sort of looking for, you know, have exchanges seen this? Have uh, trading firms seen this? Have other venture folks? So when we flew out to SF, we had a pretty concrete plan in terms of, you know, these are exchanges we have relationships with. These are family offices that have been asking for products like this that we've been helping navigate. And, you know, we sort of in New York got a lot of these family offices really early on to commit um, as soon as we decided to go first full time. So when we flew out to SF, we had the commitment of family offices who wanted to use the tool and were going to invest. We had a good understanding of, you know, market structure and how the exchanges would respond and where they would be supportive. And so we came, I think, with a with a pretty clear plan, but we hadn't built anything yet. But I think people definitely looked at Greg's track record of building and selling companies um, and network and our cumulative network um, on the sort of network and client side and said, you know, this is a team that can kind of bridge both the crypto side of it, um, but also at the same time, the institutional side. And my background in the space is I was lucky enough to be a seed investor in Algorand, early investor in Blockstack, uh, investor in Zeppelin. So, you know, I'd spent a couple years in the space getting to know investors pretty well doing those deals. Jen had been the first one of the first investors in Numerai and, and Polychain and in some of the funds as well. So understood, you know, their structure. So I think people realized that it was a pretty well formulated plan, but, you know, we hadn't executed on it at all yet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, but you had all the kindling wood there, and certainly the momentum in the right direction. How did you come up with the name Tagomi, or what does Tagomi mean? Is there a is there a history to that word, or is it, it is a nice sounding word? Oh, thanks. Yeah, so actually, you know, we weren't going to keep the name. It was we called it Project Tagomi. Um, because at the time we were, you know, it was sort of East meets West. And at the same time, we were kind of balanced between this finance world and this new crypto world. And so that, that spirit, that ethos was very similar to the character in Man in the High Castle. Um, a guy called Tagomi is one of the protagonists in the book and in the show. Mm. Um, and he was very much that he's, uh, you know, a guy from Japan, but a protagonist helping the Americans. He, um, could go between different worlds. And so it was just sort of a project name. So in fact, in first effect, we called ourselves project to as we were putting this all together globally. Um, and then we had two failed naming studies. The second one came up with the name mangrove, which is particularly bad. Sounds like a college dorm or something, uh, maybe a negative phrase for a college dorm. But yeah, it and and we had the domain. It was nine ninety nine. We kind of bought it when we decided to call ourselves Project Tagomi while we were waiting on coming up with something. And then it, it just stuck. So, you know, now like we have a crypto kitty in the office. We call it Tago Meow. So, you know, <laughs> there's there's sort of all kinds of plays on Tagomi and it's kind of become, you know, a name we really enjoy. That's awesome. That's awesome. So uh, now you are, uh, when was that initial fundraise? How far away from that are we now? Yeah, Yeah, so that was 13 months ago. That was in January um, of, of 2018. And then basically a year later, you know, we launched. So we launched in December after three months of rigorous testing, and we started onboarding clients. And as we onboarded clients, you know, many of them said, this is really cool. Like, you know, this, this platform looks great. I love how it routes my trades electronically. I don't need to call anybody. Um, you guys are never 
the bet. You're going to wherever the price is best. You're giving me post-trade reports. Like this is a really cool end-to-end solution where I don't have to have multiple custodians and banks and exchanges. You guys are doing all of this and it's packaged together. This is really cool. I want to use this more. I want to suggest features. I want to be really hands-on with you guys. Um, And we love that. And we still had over half the money we had raised left. Um, But they said, you know, if we're going to be doing all this work and, you know, really partners in this and not just clients, we want to be investors. And so that was super cool and humbling. Um, So we went back to Founders Fund and our other early investors like Collaborative Fund. um, And and we got the feedback that, you know, we could open up a note and do a financing um, for clients. And, you know, Paradigm ended up leading that round. Um, We were super excited to to partner with them. Obviously, Fred has been in the industry through Coinbase for a long time. Matt's been in the industry through Sequoia a long time. And Charlie was actually a, an angel investor of ours from the first round. So, you know, it was great them coming in, you know, being a, a, a major client and a major investor. But we also got a lot of support from other folks. So, you know, especially folks like Pantera and Multicoin and CoVentures, um, the Bailey family behind Cambridge Associates. So it was a really great group of people who were already invested in us by trading with us or, you know, now really hands-on giving us feedback and thinking about how do we lend out coin? How do we do staking? How do we do shorting? Um, All these new feature requests and helping us organize it. So it's just, I think, a real unique advantage at Tacomi as we're building alongside, um, you know, our ideal clients. And and that's super fun. Hmm, That's really interesting to to go and raise money from effectively your customers. Had you thought about or contemplated doing a ICO or building a crypto-specific uh, pathway to raising money, or was that just a, not a necessary step? And just going out and raising traditional convertible notes is just a better path to to pursue there. For us here, I think you know, really having the client aligned with us, and this was a nice way to do it. And certain clients are going to be more hands on, like Paradigm. So we were able to kind of adjust for that, which was really nice. I think also, you know, the first, actually, the first user we ever had on our platform was a RIA. Um, who had never bought any sort of crypto and decided to buy a little bit of Bitcoin. And so we also have folks like that um, who I think will take some time before they're kind of comfortable with the idea of, you know, essentially an operating company as opposed to a distributed protocol that needs a token governance, right? Um, Having like an operating company issue a token like that. So I think for, you know, tokenization makes sense, especially at the protocol level, um, you know, even at the app level in some cases. And then, of course, as you start thinking about real assets being tokenized, um, I'm just not sure like our company is, you know, the best application of that quite yet. And this was a way to, you know, make sure we could kind of figure out which clients wanted to be more hands on and, you know, they could buy more equity and they could have ownership and rights. And those things were important to them at this stage. Mm, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, what do you think now is the is, is the general trend? So just from a strictly from a price perspective, uh, Bitcoin is now settled at around just under four thousand for a while from a from a major you know downturn last year. <clears throat> How have you seen the behind the scenes traders? Because I, I, I feel like there's really tell me if you disagree with me, but there's sort of two major different categories of traders, people who are uh, using Bitcoin on a day-to-day basis, but maybe more so they're just independently putting some percentage of their individual bank account into that, you know, maybe a 1000 to $10,000, something significant for the average person, but uh, also an independent decision. And then there is the 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 family funds and the much larger day traders who are trading, like you said, a million or 
$2 million trades. Have you seen those larger trades, those larger funds start to change directions in any notable way over the last six months or year? Are they, or even you know now as it is, are they carrying certain attitudes about how they look at the market or any insight from actually seeing and interacting with so many of those folks? Yeah, so so we're a brokerage service, so you can both buy and sell on the platform, and of course, there are many different digital assets. And so, um, you know, our services is pretty useful for just thinking about growing the market in general, not necessarily you know a certain direction or certain pricing. Um, you know, we handle all sorts of directions and pricings and are that layer and that brokerage service. I think we've been surprised at how different the types of people interested in crypto and who are trading Bitcoin are. So you kind of have, you know, people who've been in the ecosystem for a really long time deciding, you know what, I want to buy a little bit more because it's low. But then you have an equal number in many cases saying, you know, OK, I'm, I'm helping support another project or I'm moving into angel investing. And so I need to liquidate. So you kind of have those sort of early adopters as one group. Um, certainly the rise of the crypto fund. I think right now, if you look at endowments or pension funds or large family offices, most of their exposure to crypto is either through venture capital firms or if they want it more directly to tokens through crypto funds. Um, and so you see a lot of that capital there. So like our lead investor paradigm, um, you know, one of their large prominent investors is Yale's endowment. And so there's a lot more interest in the space, but it is being funneled a little bit more, I think, towards the crypto funds. On the other hand, you do have some family offices Obviously, the Bailey family thinking very progressively around this. Cambridge Associates making a report that folks should look at, um, you know, at least look at the digital asset class and think about how they're getting exposure. So really in the research phase, but, you know, some of the families behind these organizations themselves are are a little bit more um, bought in or members of the family are bought in. Um, And so you have that group as well. And then you do have people who are more, you know, doing the quant-like trading, taking a look at arbitrage, but more market making and, um, you know, really kind of more high frequency as it approaches that. Um, So there are a bunch of different groups. And so what Tadigomi does is at the heart of us, you know, we're an uh, engineering-based company. And so we're always building new products and features. So we have an API product for some groups um, that can get programmatic access to our aggregated liquidity and settlement and treasury functions. Um, We have an advanced trader screen that's in beta right now with a few of our early clients and, you know, investors. And so it's really cool to be getting this advanced trader feedback. And then we actually have a more portfolio institution-looking product that most of our family offices and crypto funds are on. So we, out of the gate, kind of realized that there are a lot of different needs and they all have the same liquidity needs, settlement need, but the way they trade and the way you want a platform to interact with each group is different. And so we've customized you know, different models against those three groups. Mm, interesting. Well, what do you think, what's your best guess as to just a percentage of people who are using cryptocurrency for something other than trying to make money on cryptocurrency, U- using it because it's somehow better than the alternative way to send or store money? Well, what would you guess that percentage is? Yeah, I think that percent today is is on the lower side. So I think where where the innovation is going on right now is more at the early protocol stage and what's being built right on top of that. So, you know, um, I'm excited about improvements going on with Bitcoin or off-chain there. I'm excited about like just all the different things going on uh, with Ethereum right now and the people building on top of it. And then there are also new protocol systems like, you know, either Algorand, which is launching soon, um, Definity, which seems to be making a lot of progress, 
Cosmos obviously came out last week. So I think in terms of use cases, it's sort of like these earlier layer protocols need to be improved. And I, pe- I think people understand that in the community. Um, but Bitcoin is a star of value. And then, of course, the tokens associated with many of these smart contracts are are all very early, but very interesting bets at the same time. And so I think partially people are making that bet on price direction. Um, and then the use cases are more to come in the future. I think the current use cases that you're kind of alluding to is like store of value or payments. I think that's even more powerful outside the US. Um, and people are also just holding it as a hedge, right? So one of the reasons that RIA made the trade was, you know, they really believe in looking for uncorrelated assets and, you know, have identified Bitcoin as that. And so they, you know, placed a gold trade, but also placed a Bitcoin trade. And so it was nice to see that story actually playing out. And I think part of that is because pricing is more reasonable now in crypto. So that's a smaller use case, the sort of payments use case for sure. But I think the sort of value use case is a pretty big one. And then I think it will be, you know, one of many big ones as you see smart contract systems become more scalable um, and, you know, really see that change. Do you think there's a risk of one of the things I've been thinking about is if, if you, you say it was a low number, would you say greater than or less than 10 percent? I think greater than 10 percent. Yeah. So somewhere somewhere slightly greater than 10 percent. Do you do you, do you agree with the notion that there if there's a certain percentage of crypto, say, just take Bitcoin, for example, that is that is locked up with people who maintain a very long, long hold view, say multiple years. And very small percentage of the Bitcoin is actually being transferred between people who are benefiting from it on a day-to-day basis. That that in some ways is parallel to the, what happened with the uh, with the gold dollar. There was a gold, you know, silver or gold dollar that was in circulation. Everyone saved it because they thought it was going to be worth more than a dollar in the future. No one used it. They stopped printing it, and then it was just you know it was just and it was a kind of a total failure. And I think the same may have been true with the with the two dollar bill. You know, where it was just it was everyone is everyone's saving it, anticipating it being worth something more. And when everyone saves something and no one actually uses it, there's no driving force to increase value. Do you do you think that that is a potential risk for Bitcoin? For Bitcoin, less so. So I think obviously gold is still accepted as a medium of exchange. It has that mystical story. Um, it's universally accepted. And I think Bitcoin is an improvement on it in many ways in how you limit the amount. You can actually build on it. It's obviously easier to store. So I think Bitcoin is sort of an analogy to gold is pretty fair. But what you're getting at, I think, is a huge issue for a lot of other currencies that will come out, which is two questions, one around governance and another around distribution. So, you know, if you have new smart contract systems and you issue tokens or it's a foundation and you don't have distribution, it's in the hands of a few, how do you get developers incentivized to be building it? And how do you reward those developers for building the ecosystem and making the platform scalable and making apps on top of it? So I do think for a lot of smart contract systems and you know other currencies, other tokens, it is a huge challenge um, because you want to be able to incentivize people, you want to have more distribution, and you want the people building the community, not just the early adopters, to get the reward for what they're doing. And that's ultimately the only way you get something to be scalable and to have apps on top of it. So I think when you, you know, and I've talked to a lot of projects um, in the space who both when I was on the investing side and now at Tagomi, as we think about, you know, we make recommendations of maybe where should you list on exchanges or how do you think about interacting with market makers? We give, you know, a lot of projects sort of very informal advice about market structure. And I think those are the two challenges. It's, you know, how do you incentivize the people who are building and how do you make sure 
you get your token or currency in the hands of many folks. So they either use it or incentivize to keep building on it. And I think that is probably the biggest um, structural question in this market today. And there are definitely different projects taking different approaches. And it's, it's just going to be a lot of experimentation there. Yeah, yeah. What would you say is your most contrarian view on crypto? Oh, wow. Um, I mean, I think we're... This is less contrarian now, but, you know, I think we're in the maybe very beginning of the second inning. So it's just very early. Um, And, you know, I think on both, I I sort of said on both sides because I spent a lot of time with like really large wealth managers or banks and they're just so far away, in my opinion, from really adopting this in stride or understanding it. Um, And then at the other end, I talked to people who've been, you know, co-investors with me and investing in the space for a long time and, um they are under the impression like, you know, everything about modern finance is going to be changed. And it, it just always, so many of my conversations, I feel like a contrarian, but I come out somewhere in the middle, which is, you know, this is the second inning and most things today will be churned through. But at the same time, like, it's almost like the smart, I think like the cell phone is the best analogy. Like if you were to conceptually describe the cell phone to someone where you could walk around and talk to people and call them, I think we'd all agree that's like a really great idea in the 1970s. Um, but then how do you implement it? And, you know, the imp- early implementations of the cell phone, you look like kind of an idiot carrying around this huge box and it's really dumb. So it, I think smart contracts are just very conceptually a good idea to cut out the middleman, to allow for a really fast, smart settlement between different parties, not have these big legal and financial institutions in between. Um, but then how do you actually do it? But I think the cool thing about something like cell phones, and you look at their adoption in China, for example, in a five or 10 year period, the landscape just totally changed, even in a five year period. And so I kind of, you know, maybe this is contrarian, maybe not, but I see a lot of sort of flatness and then a short period of time where you hit that technology inflection and then it becomes really widely adopted. And I think especially in places like China and India, where financial systems are not as strong, legal systems are not as strong, like when that technology inflection point happens, um, similar to how you had mobile banking in China all of a sudden out of nowhere, I think you're going to see you know, the same sort of cell phone, mobile banking adoption. It'll just happen really much faster out there. Um, and so we try to spend more time out there. We have a lot of investors um, there as well. And so I think you know, that's one of the contrarian views that maybe it's going to add more value in parts of the world that are not San Francisco or not New York. Hmm. Do you think that uh, governmental regulation is overrated or underrated in terms of its impact that it, it could have to stifle innovation for a long time and potentially put crypto in the dark ages? Or do you think that that's, that's, that's an overrated uh, concern? Yeah, it's just so nuanced. So like, um, you know, at Tagomi, we on a state by state basis interact with regulators. Um, We can now operate in 19 states because of our various MTL licenses. And it's just very different. You know, certain states are like sign up here and other states have really, really long processes um, that could be streamlined or at least could be standardized. And so it's just very much based on a on the nuance of where of where you're talking about. You know, I think one example of a place that is pretty interesting is like the UK, the FCA there has been doing a lot of lunch and learns and talking to companies in the space. And um, so it's just by 
by geography, by state, by nationality, um, it's all so different. So it's really hard to to give a statement on you know regulation because it's super nuanced to you know well in which state in which country um, because there are, I think certain ones that could benefit from more to be honest and you know protecting consumers and there's others that could benefit from it being more streamlined and you know not seeing it as a threat but something that could really help push people's lives forward. Mm, yeah, it's interesting. What, which country would you view as having the greatest need for crypto, say, uh, is most likely to adopt it in a major way and potentially leapfrog ahead to the uh, you know, financial world of, of the future? Um, I think Latin America and Asia for kind of two different reasons. So I think in Asia, there's been just, uh, you know, incredible growth in the economy there, in the adoption of technology. In some ways, they're ahead of the United States. I go to Korea sometimes and, and see that. Um, but they're certainly not ahead in legal and financial. And we still have, you know, really much stronger institutions, in my opinion, in those two spaces. So I think uh, smart contract technology in Asia um, has a huge benefit for tech-savvy people who might be missing um, that piece of it. And then I think in South America, it's more, you know, the store of value case, um, being able to preserve your wealth against differences in governments and inflation um, and, you know, kind of crazy monetary policies. And so I think in, in Latin America, um, it's the sort of value case, the payment case is, is really interesting. So I think in both of those places, you could see as the technology improves and the infrastructure layers get better, and there's so many like really great people working on that and a lot of venture funding there too, that, you know, those two markets are certainly ones to watch and, you know, ones we want to get more exposure to. Mm, yeah. Uh, w- which startup opportunity or which which problem is out there that you would solve if you weren't working on Tagomi or you <sighs> maybe highlight as an opportunity uh, a call for startup? Is there a, is there one or more problems you see that aren't being appropriately addressed that you think more resources should go to and, and, and there's opportunity for startups to evolve? Yeah, so my answer is just going to be so Tagomi oriented <laughs> because I'm just 24-7 kind of demoing the product and talking to people and it's a blast, but you don't really get to pull up very much from doing that. But in doing so, you know, one thing I've identified is, um, you know, the whole KYC AML process would be really nice if that was standardized. Like, you know, if one company, like let's say Goldman Sachs, KYC AML, your family office or you as an individual or whomever, and they had a really rigorous process, couldn't that count for another place? Um, You know, so... Certain things like that or, you know, um, so for us, it's just a lot of these processes, I think, just standardizing them. It's it's interesting to see how different firms have different processes, different states, different governments. Um, I think just and, and part of that is, you know, hopefully what smart contracts can also address is really you can have your own online identity and it can protect your data and you can kind of share it. Um, so I think like people are working on that. They know it. It's not a super novel idea, but really being able to own your data and, you know, interact with people in some hybrid way where you can maintain your privacy and at the same time they can feel comfortable knowing who you are. I think there's going to be this world where, you know, you'll have these hybrid platforms where you still own some of your data, but the other party, you know, can see the rest to get comfortable with who you are. And so that, that standardization and that hybridization of data, I think would be really cool. Um, technology to work on. Yeah, yeah, there does seem to be a few product market fits for blockchain 
technology, architecture, and identity is is absolutely one of them. Where you have yeah your your ability to access information and then your ability to transfer information to other people in a way that's completely decentralized and trusted is is a major problem. I mean, it could be. It's difficult to compare the two, but identity is is just such a large problem to solve that you know every country internationally, every country maintains their own database and multiple databases of identity. That if if one were to solve that in even like a small corner of the world, that would be a huge improvement. Um, cool. Uh, any last thoughts? Any uh, words of wisdom you'd like to pass on? Uh, unto, Non-Tagomi related to say uh, early crypto uh, investors or folks who are just interested in the space or maybe working in the space, investing in the space, anything that you've seen that you think most other people don't have access to see and you feel is a unique vantage point? Yeah, I think that um, a lot more people are building now than they were in 2017. And I think that's like a really good good thing. Um, You know, the other people I meet, you know, in, in the community, everybody's really talking about what they're building. And that's sort of like the intro line. And I remember in 2017, the intro line is like, what are you investing in? And what's the new ICO? Right. Right. <laughs> so I think that's really cool. And I think the manifestation of that will be really interesting tokens and governance methods for, you know, protocol systems. And it'll be, you know, the the digitalization of real assets. And it will be actual consumer apps with utility tokens. And it'll be all of those digital assets that we want on Tagomi, that we want to list, that we want to have a broader sphere and give access to investors to in a transparent way. So it's super heartening and exciting. And I think it's actually like a really good time to join the space um, and to talk to people and to have a have a great community. So, you know, if folks were are interested and are on the fence, I think, you know, and are trying to time things, I would just say, don't do that. I would I would jump in now and at least on the side of building the infrastructure. Yeah. Awesome. Mark, if people wanted to reach you, where would they reach out? Email or Twitter? Uh, yeah. LinkedIn. Yeah. Yeah, feel free to email me. I'm Mark, M-A-R-C, at tagomi.com, tagomi, T-A-G-O-M-I. So, yeah, feel free to email if you think you'd be a good user of the product, um, you know, and and especially a vocal one with a lot of feedback. Just send me an email and we'll set up a demo. Awesome, Mark. Well, I really enjoyed talking with you and congrats on all the progress and look forward to hearing more. Yeah, you too, Michael. Thank you so much for having me. All right, cheers. Take care. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. The views and opinions expressed on any program are those of the hosts, co-hosts, and guests appearing on the show and do not necessarily reflect the view of the owners and producers of the show. Paid advertisements in form of audio announcements may appear throughout the show, including this one. Advertising can also include print and other digital formats. The owners and producers of Around the Coin do not endorse or evaluate the advertised product, service, or company, nor any of the claims made by the advertisement. All programs are subject to a one-time charge for professional editing fees, for which the interviewing guest or guests may have contributed towards. The owners, producers, hosts, co-hosts, and guests on the show are not financial advisors. Any investment advice or opinion cited during the show is for information purposes only. None of the content is intended to be investment advice. Seek a duly licensed professional for investment advice. 
if you believe there's been any violation of your copyright, trademark, service mark, or any other type of intellectual property, please inform us in writing by sending an email to legal at aroundthecoin.com. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.